0: All right. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you today. And want to say good morning and welcome to all the folks joining us online. If you got a Bible with you this morning, go ahead and go with me to the Gospel of Matthew in the 21st chapter, and we're going to take the next step in this verse-by-verse journey of Matthew's Gospel that we're calling Let's Talk About Jesus. And while you're turning there, let me just mention a couple things to you real quickly. Uh, next Saturday is our food packing event. On Saturday, across the street the Community Life Center in three different sessions, an, an early morning session, a midday session, and an early afternoon session, we're going to pack over 400,000 meals, prepackaged meals, that we'll send to our mission partner in Cuba. And last night when I came to church, we still needed over 700 volunteers to make that happen. So you're the third service that I've talked to since then, so hopefully uh, we don't need over 700 volunteers anymore, but we still need a lot of volunteers, and so that means we need your help. You can log on to the website, uh, mpcc.info, and you can just scroll down the homepage, click on Change, Go Change the World, and you can see how you register. It'll tell you the specific times for uh, that event. Uh, Let me tell you, there are two things that determine when we do this event in the calendar. Those two things... Our spring break and Easter. And when we first started doing it, Easter was early in the spring season. And so we never had any difficulty getting all the volunteers that we need. But when Easter's late in the season, and it's really late this year, it's not for two more weeks, um, it's tough because people get back from spring break and now baseball, soccer, all these things are started. And we just have busy lives. And I get that, folks. I get that. I get it. I have a busy life too. On the Saturday, of the food packing, I got a grandson with a soccer game, a granddaughter with a dance recital. We have Saturday night church. It'll be a busy day because I'm going to come and with my entire home group, we're going to be packing food in the early morning session. Uh, But, you know, here's the deal, and I'm just going to ask you the same question I've asked everybody so far this weekend. How many times, honestly, genuinely, how many times in the course of a year do you get the opportunity to do something that literally can change the world for someone? I mean... Literally. Sandy, we're going to send these meals to Cuba. Sandy and I went to Cuba last January to visit our mission partner. We were there for about five days. And uh, I I loved the experience. I was fascinated by uh, Cuba and by the city of Havana. And multiple occasions uh, throughout that trip, we were told by multiple people how much difference those meals made for the people that are there. If you have money in Cuba, then food is not necessarily an issue for you. But what I was really surprised at is how scarce food can be for people who are poor. And so there are a tremendous amount of people who live in Cuba with food insecurities, they don't have the kind of access that you and I have. So these meals, they are a big deal to a lot of people in Cuba. And so we have a chance to make a tremendous impact on people's lives by giving two to three hours of our time on a Saturday. And I get it that life is busy, but let me just ask you this second question, and then I'll shut up about this. Do you think there are times in our lives when we should say no to the lesser things that the world has to offer so that we can say yes to the greater things that God has to offer? And maybe this is one of those weekends. Maybe it means that you and your children don't do something that you can turn around and do the next week and the next week and the next week because you spend time packing meals for people who are in need making a difference in people's lives. One of the the best things about this is that you can do it as a family. If you've got elementary-aged children, your whole family can come and spend this time, and your kids can have this memorable experience knowing that they participate in something just the same way that you did that can make a difference in thousands of people's lives. So log on to the website and sign up. If you get bored while I'm preaching, log on to the website on your smartphone (laughs) and sign up. You have my permission. You have my permission to do that. All right? We need your help. And don't forget to use these Easter invitations. Uh, Easter's in a couple of weeks, and it's going to be exciting. Easter, for the first time in the history of Mount Pleasant Christian Church, and I lose track of how old the church is, but several years ago we celebrated the 125th anniversary. We'll be sharing the, uh, the celebration. We'll be ce- celebrating, rather, the resurrection with services in four different places, here in Greenwood, in the old Southside neighborhood, in Fairfax, and at Bethany. That's exciting, and so... I encourage you to bring somebody with you. Let's turn our attention to Matthew chapter 21, our text is verses 1 through 17. This is the beginning of the final act of Jesus' earthly life. It's the Passover time, which was sacred... On the Jewish calendar because it celebrated the exodus of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery so many years before. The most significant part of that celebration revolved around what happened on the night of the tenth plague. You remember the story, God sent Moses into Egypt to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and Pharaoh said no, and so God, through Moses, delivered ten plagues on the land of Egypt. The final plague was the most devastating one. It was the death of all the firstborn in Egypt. In advance of that, God told the Israelites to sacrifice a spotless lamb and mark their doorposts with the blood of the lamb, paint the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And that way, when the Lord passed through the land and He saw the homes with the blood of the lamb, He would pass over that household. He would pass over the household that showed the blood. So it was the blood of the lamb that saved the Israelites from death. The Egyptians didn't have that instruction. And so the firstborn child of every Egyptian family died On that night, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 29 says, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn prisoner who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock as well. Can you imagine the devastation of that night in the land of Egypt? Can you imagine how horrific that experience was for the people? The very next verse, Exodus chapter 12 and verse 30, the latter part of the verse says, and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a household without someone dead. You know, there are two kinds of prophecies in the Bible. The first one doesn't really require any explanation. It's what we call verbal predictive prophecy, verbal predictive prophecy. Someone says something's going to happen, and it happens. The second kind of prophecy, uh, most common kind of prophecy, is what's called a typical prophecy, a typical prophecy. And a typical prophecy is when something or someone is a is a type or an example or a foreshadowing of something or someone that is to come in the future. And that night when the Israelites were saved by the blood of the Lamb, that was the typical prophecy that pointed to Jesus because just like the Israelites were saved that night by the blood of the Lamb that was painted on the doorpost of their home, you and I are saved by the spotless blood of the Lamb of Jesus. When He died on the cross, somebody should say amen to that. It's a great, great illustration for today. The Passover happened every spring. It was always closely associated with Easter throughout the years. Thousands and thousands of people would travel to Jerusalem for this observance. I read this last week that a census was discovered that had been taken about 10 years after this time, after the time of Jesus. A census was discovered that had been taken about 10 years after the time of Jesus, and it determined that the number of lambs sacrificed during the Passover in Jerusalem was 260,000. Two hundred and sixty thousand lambs sacrificed give you an idea of how many people would have been there. They used to build a wooden trough from the altar in the temple that would go out of the city and down the slope across or down, draining rather, into the Kidron Brook and the Kidron Brook it was said would flow like it was red, like the water was red from the blood of all the lambs that had been sacrificed. Well the significance of that two hundred and sixty thousand number was the law stated that you could sacrifice one lamb for up to ten people. And so, just conservatively speaking, it wouldn't be wrong for us to estimate that there could have been as many as two million-plus people in the city of Jerusalem when Jesus entered as He began the final week of His life. He was surrounded by tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people, and so... I want to talk about that this morning. If you've got your Bibles open to Matthew 21 and you're able this morning, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of the Scripture. It's Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 17. Follow along as I read. As they approached Jerusalem and came to, the, came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything do you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Excuse me. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut down branches from the trees that would have been palm branches, and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of Him and those that followed shouted, "'Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna to the highest!' And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, "'Who is this?' The crowd answered, "'This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee.'" Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant do you hear what these children are saying? They ask him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. All right, there it is. Go ahead and be seated. We always ask God's blessing on the reading and the hearing of his word. I always love this story of the triumphal entry because it always brings to my mind, and probably many of you could say the same, vivid memories of when I was a little boy growing up in church. In the little church that I grew up in, every Palm Sunday, and that's the traditional name for the Sunday before Easter, every Palm Sunday as a part of the worship service, all the children would be gathered at the back of the church and be given fake palm branches and we would march down the center aisle of the sanctuary, that's what we called it back then, the sanctuary, waving those palm branches and shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. How many of you can remember experiences like that? It always takes me back to my childhood because it was such a memorable event in the life of Jesus. That was a part of the annual church calendar. And this all happened in such a dramatic way. We just read as Jesus got close to the city of Jerusalem, he sent two disciples to a nearby village to get a colt and her foal, and He rode them, not both of them literally, He rode them, though, into and through the streets of Jerusalem. And that wasn't an insignificant detail because that was the fulfillment of a prophecy, a verbal predictive prophecy that can be found all the way back in the Old Testament book of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. Now, as we think about this scene of Jesus entering the city, which again is the beginning of the final week of His life the first act of the final week of his life, there are a couple of things that I want to pause and say to you, and, I sh- and you should write these down somewhere in your notes. Two, two things that we should always remember. Number one, Jesus was always in control of the events of his life. Write that down somewhere and remember that. You could even write it in the margin of your Bible next to the triumphal entry, Jesus was always in control of the events of his life. We see that in the way he directed the events, not just of this story. But of all of His story, when He sent those two disciples to the nearby village to get that donkey and her colt, what He did was He set in motion a series of events that would culminate at the cross that would result in His crucifixion. Why? Because that was a part of the divine plan of God. We make a mistake sometimes when we get especially to this part of Jesus' story and beyond, We make the mistake sometimes of thinking of Jesus or looking at Jesus as a victim, but Jesus was never, ever a victim. Never. He was always in control of the events in his life. Look at these words on the screen behind me from John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. This is Jesus speaking. And he says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority. Everyone say authority. Authority. I have authority, he says, to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. Make no mistake, Jesus was always in control. He was always in control of the events of his life, even when it looks like he's not. The second thing I want to point out, you can write this down somewhere, is this. Jesus was no ordinary king. This triumphal entry... Paints the picture of a king, but Jesus was no ordinary king. And here's why because Jesus didn't come into the world to conquer, Jesus came into the world to save. Not to conquer, but to save. I love the description Paul gives of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, when he says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now note this, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus didn't come into the world to conquer. He came into the world to serve and to save. He served us by giving his life for us on the cross. He was no ordinary king. No ordinary king would have entered into the city of Jerusalem the way that Jesus did. An earthly king would have ridden into the city on a white stallion or in a royal chariot, but Jesus was on the back of a donkey he was no ordinary king and so jesus who's in complete control of the events of his life enters the city of jerusalem on the back of a donkey people are placing their cloaks and palm branches on the ground they're shouting hosanna to the son of david blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord hosanna in the highest now the word hosanna write this down means save now the implication is it means save us now that's what the word means Save us now. I told you last week that the title, Son of David, was the most common Jewish term for the Messiah. And so they were shouting, "Son of!" uh, when they were shouting, uh, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were saying, Save us now, Messiah. That's what the crowd was shouting, Save us now, Messiah. But, and this is very, very important, friends, that crowd wasn't interested in Jesus saving their souls. That crowd was interested in Jesus saving their nation. They acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, why? Because they wanted Jesus to be the Messiah. But here's the problem, they wanted Jesus to be the Messiah on their own terms. And that's why this same crowd that cheered him by saying, Hosanna, on one day turned on him a few days later and shouted out, crucify him. They went from Hosanna To the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna to the highest, to crucify him in a matter of days. And if you know the whole story, not just crucify him, but give us Barabbas. Instead, we want Barabbas to be saved, Barabbas to live. Let's let Jesus die. Why did that happen? Well, when it became clear to the crowd that Jesus wasn't going to be the Messiah that they wanted, they didn't want him anymore. And that brings up an important point that we need to understand. There's never been and there never will be a time when Jesus bows to anyone else's agenda. Jesus came into the world for the express purpose of dying on the cross, and so with His death, He could satisfy God's need with regard to justice, with regard to our sin, and that means Jesus died as a substitute for you, and He died as a substitute for me, He died as a substitute for everyone. When he went to the cross, Jesus took our place. He took your place. He took my place. He paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. Now, Jesus accomplished other things while he was in the world. He fulfilled prophecy. He gave us a glimpse of what God looks like. He showed us what genuine righteousness looks like. He modeled what it looks like to be a servant. You could say that he did other things when he came into the world, but he came into the world first and foremost for the express purpose of dying on the cross so our sin could be forgiven. And that means Jesus didn't come into the world to do your will or my will or anyone's will, for that matter. He came into the world to do God's will, and that's something this crowd didn't understand. They didn't understand that was his purpose. And that's why one day they cried out, Hosanna, to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, hosanna to the highest. And just a few days later, they cried out, crucify him. You look back at Matthew 21, verses 10 and 11, it says, when Jesus entered the city of – or excuse me, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city – everyone say whole city – whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowd answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. And so what that means is the people knew who Jesus was, but they didn't believe who Jesus was. They knew who he was, but they didn't believe in who he was. And if you don't believe in who Jesus is, and I'm talking now about the biblical Jesus, I'm not talking about the Jesus that we create in our minds, I'm not talking about the Jesus that the culture creates sometimes, If you don't believe in who Jesus is, the biblical Jesus, then you'll never know Jesus in a personal way. And never was that truth more expressed or expressed more clearly, I should say, I guess, than here in the story of the triumphal entry. Now, Matthew's gospel goes on to tell us that after this triumphal entry, Jesus went into the temple and created an incredible scene by overturning tables and chasing out the merchants and the money changers who were doing business there. I'm going to push the pause button and I'm going to tell you something about Matthew's gospel here in contrast to the other gospels. Matthew writes about this like it happened immediately after the triumphal entry, but it didn't. It happened the next day. That's clear from the other gospel accounts. I don't know. I can't give you an answer why, but for some reason, Matthew condenses some of the events of Jesus' final week like they happened one right after the other without any kind of a break. We'll see that happen again next week when we return to church, and we look at the next passage. There are different beliefs that people have about the specific timeline of Jesus' last night, or last week, rather. Some people believe that Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on Sunday. Uh, Again, that's why the Sunday before Easter is typically called uh, Palm Sunday. But there are others who believe that Jesus didn't enter into the city of Jerusalem until Monday. Now, I don't have time to give you a detailed explanation of both of those beliefs, but you can study that on your own and come to your own conclusion, I just want you to know that the clearing of the temple did not happen until the next day. The clearing of the temple and the events associated with that didn't happen until the next day. Now, why did Jesus clear the temple? Uh, well, I want you to hang on to that question because I'm going to answer it in just a minute. The next thing that happened after He cleared the temple, according to Matthew's gospel, is that the blind and the lame came to Him at the temple and He healed them. And this resulted in a brief but a kind of a tense confrontation with the religious leaders. Look back at verses 14 through 16. Uh, it says, the blind and the lame came to Him at the temple and He healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw this, one, saw the wonderful things He did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the Son of David, they were indignant. It didn't take much to make these guys indignant with regard to Jesus. And so they confronted Jesus. Do you hear what the children are saying? Jesus replied, have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Now, that's a direct quote. The reason why he says, have you never read, that's a direct quote of Psalm 8 verse 2. And then verse 17 says, and he left them and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Why would he go to Bethany? Well, because Jesus' closest friends in all the world, apart from his disciples, lived in the town of Bethany. Who was that? Mary, her sister Martha, and their brother Lazarus. Close friends of Jesus. Don't you find that when you're in critical moments of your life that you'd like to be surrounded by people that you know love you and that you can trust? And this was a refuge for Jesus during this last week of his life. Well, here's what I want to do with the uh, roughly 13 and a half minutes I've got left this morning. I wanted to explain to you a little bit about the triumphal entry, but what I also want to do is I want to use the events of the text, and I'm going to start with the triumphal entry and go all the way to the end. I want to use the events of the text to provide a challenge for each one of us, and I'm going to do that by identifying four things that we need to cry out to Jesus. Think of it like this, four prayers that we need to pray, all of us, to Jesus. The story begins with thousands of people surrounding Jesus and crying out to him. Well, here are four things that we need to cry out to Jesus to make sure that he has proper place in our lives. This is your outline. If you'd like to take notes, write down next to number one the words save us. Save us. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowd shouted out, Hosanna. We've already talked about this. The word Hosanna literally means save us now. And so in crying out Hosanna, the people were acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah, as the one who would save the people of Israel. They saw Him as their Savior. They just didn't understand that He came into the world to save them from their sins. They thought the Messiah would come into the world to save them from Rome, from Roman authority. They didn't understand Jesus came to save them from their sins. But regardless of their lack of understanding, save us is still the right prayer for people like you and me to pray today. First of all, because... That's the prayer that leads to our salvation. Before any of us can become saved, we have to come to the place where we acknowledge the truth that we can't save ourselves, and this is where our relationship with God begins. We recognize our helplessness to save ourselves, and so we turn our lives to Jesus, and we cry out to Jesus, and we surrender our hearts to Jesus in complete faith and trust because we understand that He went to the cross in our place, He died for our sin, and the only way we can have our sin forgiven is through faith in Him. That's why Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No No one, no one comes to the Father except what? Through me, except through me. But there's another way we should understand this prayer, save us. We never get to a point in our lives as Christians where we don't continue to depend on Jesus to save us when we're in need. I'm not talking about saving us from our sin now in terms of salvation. I'm talking about sometimes saving us from ourselves. I'm talking about sometimes saving us from the difficult circumstances and realities of life that we can all encounter along the way. In fact, I'm, I'm sure there are people sitting in this service right now and I'm sure there are people who are listening to me online who are struggling with something in life that you know you can't fix on your own. I'm sure there are people here and people listening who have been struggling maybe sometimes for years and years with some specific sin or some self-defeating habit that you've tried to overcome on your own but you have failed every single time. And what we all need to do in that situation is we need to cry out to Jesus and the simple thing that we cry out is save us. So we're gonna do things a little different. We're just gonna do that together this morning. As we're going to pray. Now, if you're here this morning listening to me or you're listening online, I want, I want you to listen really close. If you're not a Christian, you've never come to that place in your life where you've acknowledged the reality of your sin and the helplessness you have to save yourself on your own, you've never surrendered your life in faith and trust to Jesus, well, this is where this begins, by acknowledging that you need help. And maybe what you need to do when we bow and pray is, is you, need to, you need to just pray, Jesus, save me, and then in just a, a few minutes, you're going to have a chance to walk down to the front here and you're going to be able to talk to somebody if you feel led who can help you explain or help explain to you everything that that means and what you need to understand as you make that decision and what you need to do. But maybe, and this is probably the case for most of us, we just need to say, Jesus, save me from myself and my struggle or save me from this situation that I'm in that I don't know what to do about. So let's just do that. Would you bow with me? I'm gonna pray, but you pray in your heart. Jesus, we come to you right now with a simple prayer and it's the prayer, save us. Now, you know, as God, you have the omniscience to know exactly what our need is. You know who's here today or who's listening that's not a Christian, who's never surrendered their life and faith and trust you. And I pray that you would lead and guide them and direct them to take that step to where they acknowledge their sin. They put their faith and their trust in you. And They accept the gift of salvation. I pray that you would lead them to come down so that we can have that conversation with them at the end of the service. But I also pray for everyone who, just like me, sometimes needs to be saved from ourselves and our own struggles as we try to live the right life you've called us to, as we try to put into practice the righteous position that we have in Jesus, in you, and so, I pray that you would save us, and I pray that in your name. And everybody said, amen. The second thing, right down next to number two, is the prayer, cleanse us. After the triumphal entry, Jesus, Matthew tells us, cleared the temple. He cleansed the temple Matthew 21 and verse 12 says, Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Why did he do that? Well, listen to me real close. I don't have time to give you a detailed explanation. And the truth is, I've given you an explanation of this multiple times over the years. And so I'm sure most all of you know. But the reason why he did this is because those money changers and those merchants under the authority of the religious leaders, and they had a tremendous amount of authority when it came to the temple were cheating and extorting the people who came there. They were overcharging them for sacrifices that they needed to purchase so that they could do the things that the Passover required, sacrificing the spotless lamb, and there were other sacrifices required as well, and they were charging them exorbitant rates for those things. Many of them came from other places and need to exchange money, just like you and I need to exchange money and currency when we go out of the country, and they were being cheated with the exchange rate. And all this was being done under the authority of the religious leaders so that these guys could line their pockets and pad their pockets. This was a corrupt activity going on there. Jesus recognized it, and so he drove everyone out who was involved in this. John's gospel even tells us that he made a whip, and he used it to drive out The animals that were there, Matthew said in verse 13 of our text that Jesus said, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So here's the deal. Jesus didn't, and he doesn't ignore corruption, regardless of where it's found. Now, I've heard sermons about this before, and the emphasis has been placed on us as Christians, making sure that we do the same thing Jesus did, and we stand up to sin, and we stand up and cry out against corruption, and we overturn the tables of the world, and we... (laughs) get a whip and chase down these sinners who are corrupt. There's no question that we need to speak up for what's right. There's no question that we're supposed to be a light in the darkness, that there are times when we need to be the spiritual conscience of a fallen world. But how about this? How about before any of us turn our attention to the corruption of other people? How about we ask ourselves this simple question? If Jesus came into the temple of my life, what tables would He overturn? What elements would he drive out? In what areas of my life have I made an alliance with corruption that goes against the grain of what or who, rather, Jesus has called me to be? And so our prayer needs to be, Jesus, cleanse me. See, here's, friends, here's the thing about corruption. Corruption doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time, little by little. We move a little bit away from the person that Jesus wants us to be, and we don't recognize it because it's not that much, and then we we move a little bit further away, and then after a period of time goes by, we look at our lives, and we're light years away from the person that Jesus wants us to be because every day we're surrounded by temptation and wrong kinds of influences. We let them creep into our lives, and all of a sudden... We're so far from the person that Jesus wants us to be that we're shocked. When we look at ourselves in the mirror, when we look at ourselves in particular in the mirror of the scripture, sometimes we don't even recognize the corruption when it happens, and so we need to cry out to Jesus and say, cleanse me. How about we do that together this morning? You bow, I'll pray, but let's all pray in our hearts. Jesus, we come to you now, and we just pray that you would cleanse us. You know the problem sometimes with living a righteous life is we can look at our lives and we can think, you know, I'm not that bad. I do a lot of good things. And surely the good things I do outweigh the bad. But we, we let ourselves slip into patterns of behavior and patterns of thought and patterns of speech that don't honor you. And, and corruption literally enters into our lives and we need to be on guard We need to be alert because our enemy, the devil, wants to just deceive us with regard to these things until our lives have no light and no salt and no distinction in this sinful fallen world. And that is not your will for any of us. And so help us to look into our lives and be honest and be willing to pray, Jesus, cleanse me. In your name we pray. Everybody say it together. Amen. The third thing we write down is use use us. Use us. Use me. In the midst of all that was happening, Jesus paused to provide healing for, we're told, the blind and the lame. Verse 14 says, the blind and the lame came to him at the temple. Right after he had done this cleansing, at least in Matthew's account, they come to Him and Jesus heals them. And that verse teaches us two important things about the ministry of Jesus. First, it teaches us that people's needs are important to God. Remember, Jesus came to the world to show us, in part, to show us what God was like. We talked about that verse from Hebrews 1, 3 a little while ago where the Hebrew writer says that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. He's saying that Jesus lights up the reality of who is, of who God is and Jesus is the perfect personal imprint of God in the world. When we look at Jesus, we see God. And so when we see that Jesus takes time to notice the needs of the people around him, we know that people's needs are important to God. And so when these blind and these lame people came to him in the temple, he was moved with compassion and he helped them. They were were hurting. There are hurting people all around us and we need to reach out to them and bring the healing power of Jesus into into their lives. The second thing it teaches us is that Jesus' ministry revolves around people. We see that first and foremost in his resolve to go to the cross and to die for our sin, but also in the way he cared for the people he encountered along the way. And so let's follow his example, friends. Let's avoid the temptation to get sidetracked or to get lured away by the lesser things of life, and let's keep our attention and our focus on people. Let's make our prayer use us to do your work here on this earth, and so... One more time, would you bow with me and we would pray that prayer, the prayer of use us, for each of us individually, the prayer use me. Jesus, help us to open our eyes to the people that are around us who are hurting and the people who are in need. You know what? The truth is that there's probably somebody hurting and in need on the row that we're sitting on this morning. I've probably greeted people today who are hurting and in need and I did it in passing. They're everywhere we go in the network of our life and help us to follow the example of Jesus. And regardless of what's going on in our lives, we recognize those needs, we see those needs, and we do whatever we can to minister to them and make an impact and a difference, make an impact on their lives and a difference in their lives in the name of Jesus. That's our prayer. Everybody say it with me together. Amen. One last thing. Write down the words, hear us. Hear us. The chief priests and the teacher of the law, the religious leaders got upset by everything that was happening, especially the children shouting Hosanna to the son of David, and they confronted Jesus about them, and he replied, haven't you read from the lips of the children an in inference you have ordained praise? I told you that's a direct quote from Psalm 8 too. Here's the thing. What do you think it is that Jesus wants to hear from us, friends? He wants to hear Praise. He wants us to praise Him. Do you know why we make the, the musical praise and worship part of our service such an important part? It's because that's important to God. Throughout the Bible, we're told, we're encouraged, we're exhorted to praise Him. And one of the most significant ways we welcome Jesus into our lives, one of the most significant ways we welcome Jesus into our church is through praising Him. Because when we, be, when we begin to praise Him, He begins to move in our hearts, and around us, and so we need, to, we need to practice the daily habit of offering praise and worship to Jesus, to God. Let's do that together this morning.